This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Well, hi again, and um, welcome to uh, the fourth podcast that I'm doing in my series of The Irrational Human Being. And today, what I wanted to do was to link back to the last podcast where I talked to you about how an attitude is developed and how I, I used uh, climate change as an example of developing an attitude and changing a culture. And what I talked about in that podcast was attitude and attitude development. I talked about the aspects of um, attitude, cognitive, affective, behavioural, the cognitive is the thinking part, the affective is the feeling part and the behavioural is the doing bit. I then talked about balance theory, then I talked about the concept of the ladder of inference, how we actually observe data, we interpret that data, we draw conclusions and then we take action. And as I said, I've used um, the development of an attitude to climate change as the example, that's more of a whole cultural revolution. And it's interesting, if we want change... There's two ways of making change, I suppose. Evolution or revolution. Evolution, the downside, takes a lot of time. Revolution, there's blood on the carpet. And oftentimes, revolutionary changes aren't fully embedded anyway. And there's an alternate way, which is to fast-track a revolutionary change. What I'm going to talk to you now is about how uh, the whole attitude to climate change was fast-tracked. What I talked about in the last... um, a podcast was the observed data. So I talked about Al Gore's uh, inconvenient truth. I talked about the emancipated polar bear from National Geographic, the walruses on Netflix, uh, President Obama and his disasters. I even threw in a little bit there about Tara Brown going down to Churchill and goodness gracious me, almost getting eaten by a 300 kilogram polar bear. Talked about the predictions of the melting Himalaya glaciers, which to my interpretation of science isn't happening. One thing I didn't talk about, which was another issue that has been used, I guess, to promote the whole notion of climate change is the Barrier Reef. The Barrier Reef facing total destruction from coal spillage, potentially bleaching, warming, acidification, uh, dredging. The other thing that I mentioned too was um, the kangaroos escaping the fire on the front of the um, response to the IPCC report. And of course the extreme weather events and news and politicians claiming this was climate change. And if we look now at the interpretations based on the emotional response to this data, mostly, and and I won't say it's totally based on the emotional response, it's based on the cognitive response, climate change is responsible. Fossil fuels are responsible for climate change. We're destroying the planet. The conclusions, we must stop this. How could we be so stupid? Climate change is a direct result of fossil fuels and killing the planet. We must stop the use of fossil fuels. Governments must act. We must force governments to act. We must reduce our carbon footprint. The actions, children protesting, striking, um, Greta Thornburg coming out as a a strong advocate, the Extinction Rebellion um, sitting in on roads and disrupting traffic and all sorts of things, the massive changes in government policies around the world, Eco-anxiety, which is a phenomenon where many people are experiencing anxiety due to their fear of climate change. Um, And it will, as I think I mentioned last time, more than likely become a recognisable disorder under the um, DSM-5 or 
They bring in another model of the DSM. Economic shifts. We're moving away from coal-fired power station. Here in Australia at the moment we're seeing um, massive increases in, um, in electricity production. We're also seeing, uh, I guess, the green energy revolution. And an interesting thing that's been happening again here in Australia, a lot of people have been up in arms about the destruction of the ecosystem Whereas 20 years ago, environmentalists would have been out there saying, save the platypus, save the koala bear, save the rainforests. And now rainforests have been torn down uh, in the name of protecting the climate to build wind farms, etc., etc. We've seen greenwashing. And I'll get on to greenwashing a little bit later on. But greenwashing is really uh, the use of balance theory to get on the bandwagon, for want of a better word, of green. So if we reflect now on that objective data the stirred emotions and the created powerful strong mental models, the thoughts. I was just having a conversation about an environmental scientist who um, refuses to even engage in discussion um, about potential deniers, etc. These folks uh, are ripe for confirmation bias um, because you get a strong view, you will not listen to an alternate view. So those of you who have formed a view that we must completely and swiftly act against climate change will potentially ignore other data. You'll discredit the source of other data. You'll say deniers are wrong, etc., etc., etc. So this is how the ladder of inference, balance theory, confirmation bias have all swung in to build this very powerful culture. How does this ladder of inference work? And how is it influenced? And if I were to say to you now, what if... Just what if there was evidence that a lot of what I presented in the last podcast was staged for your benefit, to get you to a point where you totally believed that we are on the brink of doom. Remember, 2.5 billion people watched the Nat Geo video on the emancipated polar bear. Regardless of truth, was there a game afoot? Let's start back in 1989 with Dr Stephen Schneider, a Stanford University climatologist. Schneider was a frequent contributor of commercial and non-commercial print and broadcast media on climate and environmental issues. And in 1989, Schneider addressed the challenge scientists face trying to communicate complex, important issues without adequate time during media interviews. This citation sometimes was used by his critics to accuse him of supporting misuse of science for political goals. What he said was, on the one hand, as scientists, we are ethically bound to the scientific method, in effect, promising to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but, which means that we must include all the doubts, the caveats, the ifs, ands and buts. On the other hand, we are not just scientists but human beings as well and like most people we'd like to see the world a better place which in this context translates into our working to reduce the risk of potentially disastrous climate change to do that we need to get some broad-based support to capture the public's imagination that of course entails getting loads of media coverage so we have to offer up scary scenarios make simplified dramatic statements and make little mention of any doubts we might have this double ethical bind we frequently find ourselves in cannot be solved by any formula. Each of us has to decide what the right balance is between being effective and being honest. I hope that means being both. So I guess my read of that is what Schneider was basically saying is, well, we, we've, 
we've got to just make sure that we get the public stirred up about climate change. In 2002, in the Scientific American, he again wrote, I really confess a lingering frustration, uncertainties to infuse the issue of climate change, that it is still impossible to rule out either mild or catastrophic outcomes, let alone provide confident probabilities for all the claims and counterclaims made about environmental problems. Even the most credible international assessment body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has refused to attempt subjective probabilistic estimates of future temperatures. This has forced politicians to make their own guesses about the likelihood of various degrees of global warming. So now, enter Al Gore. Al Gore made the documentary, as we've talked, The Inconvenient Truth. And according to Texan climatologist Steve Queering, it's the 11th highest grossing documentary in the United States. It has had a much greater impact on public opinion and public awareness of global climate change than any scientific paper or report. If we go back to Schneider for a moment, Schneider says, of course, that entails getting a lot of media coverage. Anthony Watts, about 12 years ago, who's a senior fellow for science and environment, actually said that the stock photo that has been used time and time again by activists to illustrate the plight of the polar bear is fake. It's an artist's rendering. According to Watts in the AP Juneau, Alaska, a federal wildlife biologist whose observation in 2004 of presumably drowned polar bears in the Arctic helped to galvanise the global warming movement has been placed on administrative leave and is being investigated for scientific misconduct, possibly over the veracity of that article. According to the Anchorage Daily News, he's on leave pending results of the investigation. And according to Watts, it seems everywhere you look there's some sort of fakery going on with the polar bear issue. For example, the image um, where Science Magazine used this fake image to hype the issue. And of course... As uh, Watt says, everyone remembered the scene from the 2005 Al Gore science fiction movie An Inconvenient Truth where Gore had the animated clip of the polar bear in danger of drowning trying to get into a tiny ice flow made smaller, presumably by global warming. Gore cited this study about drowned polar bears and this is the study that apparently was under investigation according to Anthony Watts. Later posts claim that Al Gore said in 2009 that the North Pole will be ice-free in the summer of 2013 because of man-made global warming. Gore said something similar, reciting researchers doing a 2009 climate change conference. Gore said there was a 75% chance of ice in the Arctic would be gone during at least some summer months within five to seven years. Reports indicated that he misrepresented the details of the research. Gore then went on to win a Nobel Peace Prize and being described as a master communicator. I found this um, article um, quite interesting and probably somewhat disturbing. The photo that I'll put up now is a photo of a, um, a dust devil or fire tornado that occurs in the Australian outback. And Alice Springs filmmaker Chris Tangi actually took a photo uh, of this dust devil and it went uh, worldwide and it pr- prompted Gore's office to approach Chris for the rights to use it in their productions. As reported by News Limited, Chris questioned why Al Gore would want to use a natural phenomenon to promote his beliefs on climate change and anthropogenic global warming. From the News Limited report, 
I am aware that you may have missed the reporting on the very localised nature of this firestone, Mr Tanji wrote. However, in any case, I am confused as to why you would offer to buy a licence to use it at all unless you had conducted every elementary research, which might indicate that this Mount Connor event had direct linkage to global warming or climate change. Joel Lisenby, manager of the North and Territory Climate Services Centre, agreed and said he would not link such an event to global warming. This event was better described, as I've said, as a dust devil, according to Mr Lisenby. And according to um, one of Gore's supporters... Some AGW activists, that's anthropogenic global warming, have done their cause great harm by use of images that depict everyday events to evoke a sense of urgency or fear about climate change. And Al led the way. In his film An Inconvenient Truth, he used emotive images of Hurricane Katrina and the drying up of Lake Chad to demonstrate the effects of climate change, although there is no proven link between them. I actually happened across an interview um, with a scientist, uh, Judith Curry, who was the chair at the um, Institute of Technology in Georgia. She uh, yesterday stated that there is no evidence that links extreme weather events with climate change. So let's look now at the walruses and the walruses falling off the cliffs. And this is according to Susan Cockford, who was a geologist with more than 40 years' experience including published work on the Holocene history of Arctic animals. And she was a former adjunct professor at the University of Victoria in British Columbia where she was sacked for actually disputing a lot of the popular data about polar bears and polar bears becoming extinct due to um, global warming. And if you look at that now famous episode of Netflix... It was narrated uh, by the late David Attenborough. It features walruses falling from atop a high cliff and bouncing helplessly over rocks to their deaths. The incident occurs after what is called the land haul-out, which is when large herds of walrus females and calves emerge from the water to gather and rest on the beach. This is according to Susan Cockford. The show blames the land haul-outs and the death caused by falling from cliffs squarely on lack of ice due to human-caused climate change. They'd be on the ice if they could be, but there's no option for them but to come to land. The episode producer says, This claim isn't true, according to Cockford. In fact, the US Fish and Wildlife Service has determined in October 2017 that Pacific walruses have not been harmed by recent ice sea loss and are not expected to be harmed in the foreseeable future. Still, the brutal death scenes horrified sensitive viewers, and while some shook their heads at the questionable claims, film producer Sophie Lanfear has defended her inclusion of the sequence as an essential truth, although Netflix eventually issued a warning to animal lovers that they might want to skip the death sequence. But animal lovers and sensitive viewers are the target audience. The sole intention of the footage of walruses falling to a splattery death is to spark outrage, to shock viewers into taking climate change seriously. Lanfear admits as much. I would like people to think about their lives and the fossil fuels they use in their lives and be inspired to support renewable energies and to try and find solutions to this problem, she told People magazine. And the World Wildlife Fund, which partnered with Netflix for the series, is now busily promoting walruses, according to Cockford, as the new symbol of climate change. So why is the World Wildlife Fund doing that? According to Cockford... The World Wildlife Fund was partnered with Netflix and they're run by professional lobbyists who know fundraising is more successful if the public makes an emotional connection. And this is a natural phenomenon, hauling out, and walruses, according to Cockford, have always gathered on land, 
boom and bust population cycle. Currently at that time they were particularly abundant. Sometimes they go to higher ground near cliffs. It's nature of way of doing things. And actually fences um, have been erected on some Alaskan cliffs to keep the walruses from actually taking the plunge. Initially, our planet reporter, Sophie Lenfear and cameraman Jamie McPherson, denied that polar bears had been in the vicinity when the Netflix video was being shot. It later became clear that this was not true. So what Cockford's saying is that the polar bears had a big influence on pushing the um, walruses to the edge of the cliff where they fell off. It was also later revealed that drones were used extensively in the filming of these events. Drones can send walruses into a panic and for that reason their use is prohibited in United States refuge areas and discouraged near haulouts on the American side of the Chakia Sea. This film was on the Russian side. According to Cockford, walrus populations are increasing. I just want to come now back to the, um, the infamous polar bear, the emancipated polar bear. When Natural Geographic magazine published the video, as I showed you last time, the emancipated polar bear, which is falsely blamed on global warming. This kind of disturbing nature film footage has become known as tragedy porn, according again to Cockford. It's infused with a narrative that misrepresents or glosses over important facts for the sole purpose of manipulating emotionally immature viewers into feeling distressed and angry. And both the starving polar bear and the plummeting walruses count on viewers who are well-connected on social media to vent their display and spread the climate change alarm. The caption under the picture of the, po- of the polar bear said, as temperature rise and sea ice melts, polar bears lose access to the main staple of their diet, seals. Starving and running out of energy, they are forced to wander into human settlements for any source of food. Feeding polar bears is illegal. Without finding another source of food, this bear likely only had a few more hours to live. And if again, I remind you that 2.5 billion minds would have been, I guess, influenced in some way or another by the pictures of that polar bear. What Susan Cockford found was that Sea Lager's media and communications partner, Natural Geographic, published the video with added subtitles that began, this is what climate change looked like. The Sea Legacy web page published the video also under a headline that claimed, this is the face of climate change. The message was clear, blame climate change for the bear's fate. The criticism continued for months, until again, according to Cockford, out of the blue, some previously undisclosed facts about the incident were revealed online in an essay written by the partner of the um, photographer, um, Christina Mittermeier. Mittermeier admitted that Nicklin, the photographer, was scouting for an image that could be used to communicate the urgency of climate change when he spotted the emancipated bear. She confessed that she and Nicklin knew the bear was probably sick or injured before they started to film, but proceeded regardless. She also revealed that days passed between Nicklin's first sight of the starving bear and the actual filming of it. He told no one about the suffering animal while he waited for his film crew to arrive. In her essay, according to Cockford, Mittermeer makes a number of excuses for the subsequent public outcry over the footage but ultimately blames National Geographic for subtitles on the video that missed the story's nuance. Apparently... She thinks Sea Legacy's caption that implicated climate change is materially different from National Geographic's caption 
that implicated climate change. Oddly, National Geographic admitted culpability with an apology embedded in Mittermeier's essay that began, National Geographic went too far in drawing a definitive connection between climate change and particular starving polling bear in the opening caption of our video about the animal. Why would it issue such a mea culpa? asked Cockford. Had the public backlash and editorial criticism hurt its organisation more than it was willing to admit? National Geographic might hope that Minimise essay and its apology will bring former supporters and donors back into the fold, but I suspect it's done the opposite. The additional detail make the actions of Sea Legacy founders harder to forgive, not easier. They also raise the question of whether this cruel and deliberate exploitation of a dying bear violates strict Univute conservation laws for documentary filmmaking. Minimeyer claims the public should never have taken the video literally. However, it's apparent that people did take it literally because it presented a simple message. Blame climate change for this bear's suffering. This, to my mind, is an example of noble cause corruption. So if we move now to the uh, 2007 IPCC report, and I'm going to just refer here to uh, Roger Pelkey. Roger Pelkey, uh, Jr., joined the faculty of the University of Colorado in 2001 and he was a professor in the Environmental Studies Program, advised the White House and was a scientist for the IPCC. He's written actually a a number of books. In 2007, the IPCC report presented a graph showing increasing disaster losses plotted alongside the increasing global temperatures, with the vertical scale jiggered to make them appear to be in lockstep from Pelkey. um, That was from Pelkey's... um, book, The Rightful Place of Science. Pelkey asserts he had never seen this graph in any scientific literature and was surprised. He says that he was further surprised when he saw the graph was referred to a non-peer-reviewed paper that he had commissioned for a 2006 workshop on climate change and disasters which he had organised in collaboration with others. Three years later, Robert Muir Wood, a lead author of the 2007 IPCC report, admitted that he had created the graph informally to make a point. Pelkey challenged the validity of the graph and referred to this as noble cause corruption. This is from Pelkey's book, The Rightful Place of Science, Disasters and Climate Change. Later, Pelkey was tabled in the foreign policy publication alongside a list of top climate sceptics. Why? For his work questioning certain graphs presented in the IPCC reports, Pelkey has been accused by some of being a climate denier. What am I accused of that prompted being investigated. He was also subject to a Senate investigation. Before continuing, he said, before continuing, let me make one point abundantly clear. I have no funding, declared or undeclared, with any fossil fuel company or interest. I never have. Representative Grigilava, who actually uh, raised this issue in the Senate, knows this too. Because when I have testified before the US Congress, I have disclosed my funding and possible conflicts of interest. So I know with complete certainty that this investigation is a publicly motivated witch hunt designed to intimidate me and others and to smear my name. And the big issue for alarmists is to link deniers with fossil fuel companies. So if somebody immediately raises an issue that says this is not the case, aha, they're linked to the fossil fuel companies. Professor Pelkey at the Centre for Science and Technology Policy Research has testified numerous times before the US Congress on Climate Change and its Economic Impacts. His 2013 Senate testimony featured the claim often repeated that it is incorrect 
to associate the increasing cost of disasters with the emission of greenhouse gases. So if we looked at that, and and also one of the things I didn't mention in my last podcast was the um, data and the, I guess, what's happening with a lot of Pacific Island nations saying that we're being inundated and um, we're going to sink and we demand retribution. In In an article recently by... Catch it all in 2023. In their study, they they actually suggest that most of the 1,100 Pacific and Indian Island Indian Ocean islands have been growing, not shrinking in size, in the last half century. And activists convinced humans are able to exert fundamental control over ocean dynamics. Claim the rates of sea level rise and modern change climate change are so rapid and unprecedented that modern changes are dramatically affecting shoreline movement on low-lying islands. In their study, Ketch, as I mentioned, assesses the opposite may be true. And in recent shoreline, shoreline changes, plus or minus 40 metres over 50 years, are dwarfed by the shoreline changes, plus or minus 200 metres per 100 years, that occurred through previous centuries. Globally, according to these authors, there is nothing unprecedented about what has been occurring with reef island shoreline dynamics in recent decades. And then we have, uh, I guess, to to add more impetus, more impetus to the whole argument. I was interested in uh, looking at the press release uh, or the talk that Adam Brandt, the leader of the Greens in Australia, did uh, pre. Uh, I guess the previous election in 2022. Brandt stated, and the truth is we're at war. People are being chased from their homes by floods and, fire, floods and fires. Our enemy is the climate crisis. The enemy is fuelled by coal and gas. Mining and burning coal and gas is killing people. The war is bleaching our reef, burning our forests to the ground, dropping rain bombs on our towns and cities, damaging our communities and our economy. This war isn't happening in 2030 or 2050, it's happening now. He went on to say, we have to stop arming the enemy. If these projects, new coal mines, go ahead, we will be locking in decades of damage. We will cook, we will be washed away, we will starve and we will die. You can't put fire out while pouring more petrol on it. So you will hear the Greens continue to deliver a simple message being on election day, no more coal and gas. I wonder if there is in science many questions that suggest Adam Brandt was conveniently riding on the back of many Australians' misfortune for political gain. So what's happened here? If we look at the ladder of inference, the observed data, as I said before, the inconvenient truth, the polar bears, walruses, more polar bears in the emancipated polar bear with um, Nat Geo. The barrier reef, very emotional, very emotional to tell us that the reef's being ruined. Obama delivering his address to the nation. Extreme weather events. The interpretations were made for us. So from the development of the attitude, the data through emotions, we've developed strong mental models and the behaviour. So almost out of the magic box, we have a new culture perfectly manufactured, using the ladder of inference. Some of the interpretations made for us, sea level rise, Adam Brand's speech to the press club, the media got on board, the Churchill polar bears. Polar bears have been coming into Churchill for many years. As a matter of fact, it's a tourist attraction. The managed science. One example, um, in Peter Ridd's book, Reef Heresy, he talks about a study 
um, that was done by Berry et al. in Scientific Report 6.1, where they showed how coal dust on the Barrier Reef, if, a, if a, say, a, a coal ship um, went aground on the Barrier Reef, the damage in their, according to RID, in their uh, experiment, they used a very fine coal dust. And ships don't transport coal dust. They transport cold pieces that are in excess of 20-odd mils and bigger than that. That's how they transport coal. And coal actually floats. So they've, as, again, as I said, according to um, RID, this was manufactured in that it, it wasn't accurate. How many more scientific experiments are being manufactured? And that can be on either side of the argument, okay? I'm not sort of saying that there's only one side of the argument that might manufacture science. Extreme weather events, all this catastrophe, climate change, fossil fuels as the cause. Some of the missing interpretations, are there other climatic influences? Some scientists will say it's because we're moving out of an ice age. There is the unknown certainty of modelling. Many scientists argue that the models aren't certain. Um, Judith Curry will talk about that. Um, the temperature recordings. Um, are the temperature recordings accurate? There's conjecture in science about the 1.5 degree tipping point or the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And as I said before, here we have the behaviour, the extinction rebellion, economic turbulence, eco-anxiety the green emergence, political reaction, and greenwashing, as I said before, is the commercial reaction. And this is actually a brilliant example of balance theory, if we look at the triangle, where if you can have any product from beer to financial institutions to internet providers who can say, we are green, the balance then, if you think climate change is wrong, these people say they're green you will align with their product more strongly. That's the theory. Interesting, ASIC has actually launched its first court action against alleged greenwashing conduct. And they commenced civil penalty procedures in the federal court against Mercer Superannuation Australia Limited, Mercer for allegedly making misleading statements about the sustainable nature and characteristic of some of its superannuation investment options. ASIC Deputy Chair Sarah Court said this is the first time ASIC has taken an Australian entity to court regarding alleged greenwashing conduct and it reflects our continuing efforts to ensure sustainability-related claims made by financial institutions are accurate. And as I said before, there's so many people advertising um, that they are green and what really does that mean? The commitment to net zero is one of the consequences. Alarmism is one of the consequences. And what is alarmism? It's excessive, exaggerated alarm of a real or imagined threat. Alarmism connotes attempts to excite fears or giving warnings of great danger in a manner that is amplified, overemphasised or unwarranted. In the news media, alarmists can often be found in the form of yellow journalism where reports sensationalise a story to exaggerate small risks. So now we have a new culture... And this is based on noble cause corruption. Noble cause corruption, according to political scientist Ainsley Callow, described it as the good cause, one that most of us support, can all too readily corrupt the conduct of science, especially science informing public policy, 
because we prefer answers that support our political references and find scientists that challenge them less comfortable. Basically, that's just uh, confirmation bias under a different hat. And why they refer to it as noble cause corruption, it actually came from, I suppose, criminal investigations and it was originally called the Dirty Harry Syndrome. Some of you remember Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry where Harry was that real tough cop who would go out and if he knew that the bad guy was the bad guy, he would manufacture the evidence to catch the bad guy or he would just break the, the rules, go in and find evidence. Um, so really that's what noble cause corruption is. It's to say we can do anything because we have a noble cause. And if you see there Schneider advocating we've got to get this out in the media and we've got to tell, um, I guess, these emotional stories... What happened to Pelkey, the walruses, the, certainly the, um, uh, the Netflix video? The second way, I guess, is what we've seen is to have a fast-paced evolutionary change. And there's a concept basically called the burning platform. And what it says is, in order for people to adopt a radical strategy for change, they need to feel it's important and necessary so you need to think about how you will generate that awareness and convey that it's urgent and important. Unfortunately, this often involves creating a pain message. A burning platform is a very specific, urgent kind of pain message. It started with Schneider saying, we have to do it. It went to Al Gore with an inconvenient truth. And according to Anthony Watts, was misleading. According to Cockford, the emancipated polar bear was staged. According to Cockford, the walrus haulouts were staged. Adam Brandt's political message, a good way to gain political mileage. And what Pelkey and Judith Curry have said is that there's no link to global warming, climate change and natural disasters or extreme weather events. And I can imagine if you're listening to me now and you're young and you've seen all these things, or even if you're old and seen all these things, if you've studied environmental science, you would look at me as being the worst possible denier. I too recently um, went back to university to study climate change to try and find out really what was the science, to try and get to the core of it. I did a study on um, eco-anxiety as a psychologist and came up with all of this, what I'm telling you now. So it's a wonder, where is the truth and where are the mistruths? And what's the agenda? And I, I came across this, which was in the Investors Business Daily on the, on the 2nd of um, the 10th, 2015, at a news conference last week in Brussels, Christiana Figueres, Executive Secretary of the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change, admitted that the goal of environmental activists is not to save the world from ecological calamity, but to destroy capitalism. This is the first time in history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model. That has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, she said. Referring to a new international treaty, environmentalists hope will be adopted at the Paris Climate Change Conference later this year, she added, 
This is probably the most difficult task we have ever given ourselves, which is to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. Judith Curry, who I said uh, was part of the IPCC until she felt very pressured, until she started to uh, investigate a lot of the things she'd be looking at, been looking at, um, regarding hurricanes and um, uh, global warming um, and anthropogenic input into that. She had a look and a review of some of her studies and resigned her chair from the Georgia Institute of Technology because she was convinced that she was being pressured. And she actually said, in 2005, I had a conversation with Rajendra Prachuri, who was a climatologist who'd been actually an Indian railway engineer and became director of the IPCC, which received the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize under his tenure. Pachuari told me, she said, without embarrassment, that at the UN he recruited only climatologists convinced of the carbon dioxide warming explanation, excluding all others. This extraordinary collusion today allows politicians and commentators to declare that science says that carbon dioxide is to blame for global warming or that a scientific consensus exists on warming, implying that no further study is needed something that makes zero sense on its face as scientific research is not based on consensus but on contradictory views, according to Curry. My personal view, I tend to think that somewhere, somehow, someone decided to up the ante. And this might have started back with um, Schneider, might have started with Gore. And given the whole debate Reclimate change and human input was toing and froing in scientific circles. How do you up the ante? You create a burning platform and you manufacture an altitude, an altitude. How do you do that? You use the ladder of influence and balance theory and you give the uninformed masses the information so now they become informed. It matters not if that method is really noble cause corruption. You make it emotional. Animals, polar bears, walruses... An iconic wonder of the world, the Great Barrier Reef. Add national disasters or extreme weather events. And this whole culture is developed using simple psychological principles. You rely on the irrational human being, not really fact-checking, not really recognising that their decisions have really been made for them. And regardless of the science around, they've been emotionally conditioned. Thank you very much for listening and I look forward to seeing you on my next podcast. Thank you and goodbye.